Please be seated. Good morning. Guess what just happened before I came up here? The batteries ran out on my lapel, so we'll get those fixed. Little boy asked his mother, Mom, did I come from apes? And she said, I don't know, I haven't met all of your dad's family. <laughs> Hebrews 3 and 4 reads, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. There are some pieces of scripture that are hard for me to understand. No matter how many times I read them, I have a difficult, difficult time comprehending them. But not this one. This one's pretty easy. Because I know that every time I see a house, somebody built it. I may not have even seen the person build it, but I know that somebody built it, that it didn't just appear out of nowhere. Any sane, rational human being would have to admit that if they see a house, somebody had to build it. And yet, many people who claim to be sane and rational and logical think that our universe and everything in it, all the intricate detail, just appeared out of nowhere. Wouldn't you like to have those folks as your parents? They walk into the kitchen, you messed it all up, you did all this stuff to just make the kitchen a total mess, and they walk in, they said, who did this? How did this happen? You say, I don't know, just by chance it happened. Oh, okay, that sounds good. Freedom. Have to be tied to that. We know that houses don't build themselves. Just as we know that books don't write themselves. Just as we know that music doesn't compose itself. Just as we know that uh, cars don't manufacture themselves. And we could go on and on, right? We know that these things have to have a designer. And yet, there are many people in our world that try to indoctrinate us with the idea that everything that has come into being happened by random chance, a series of mutations, when atmospheric conditions were just right. Darwinism teaches that all life forms are related through descent from some unknown prototype that lived in the remote past. In other words, the intricate detail of the cell DNA, the fact that our universe is balanced on a razor's edge, it just happened. Well, how did it happen? Well, we don't know. When did it happen? Well, we don't know that either. We don't know. You just need to accept it as a fact and not question it. Life magically appeared, and then it evolved. Renowned astronomer and evolutionist Robert Jastrow once wrote this. He said, perhaps the appearance of life on the earth is a miracle. Scientists are reluctant to accept that view, but their choices are limited. Either life was created on the earth by the will of a being outside the grasp of scientific understanding, or it evolved on our planet spontaneously through chemical reactions occurring in non-living matter lying on the surface of the planet. 
the first theory places the question of the origin of life beyond the reach of scientific inquiry. It is a statement of faith in the power of a supreme being not subject to the laws of science. The second theory is also an act of faith. The act of faith consists in assuming that the scientific view of the origin of life is correct without having concrete evidence to support this belief. Did you catch that last line? Without concrete evidence. And yet, they believe it anyway. Not only do they believe it, they present it as a fact of science. Not only do they present this theory as fact, but over the years, things have been done. In fact, anything that's necessary has been done to perpetuate the theory as a fact. Here's an example. Remember these in your textbook? These are called Haeckel's embryos. And the idea is that all the embryos, whether it be a fish, a tortoise, a chick, whatever it may be, you'll notice that they're all very similar, thus confirming that we all came from one cell, that life all originated from one cell, right? The problem is that Ernst Haeckel was exposed as a fraud in the 1800s. He doctored all these to make them look more similar. Now, this conspiracy, as I said, was exposed in the 1800s, and yet some of you remember seeing these in your science textbook 100 years later, right? You were in school in the 60s and 70s. These appeared in your textbook. In fact, they still appear in many upper-level science class textbooks. Why is that? It's already been exposed as a conspiracy. It's a fraud, and yet it's still used. How about this one? Remember Java Man? This picture, this image was emblazoned on the front of a 1998 National Geographic magazine. Java Man is the supposedly the missing link between apes and human beings. Many of you have seen Java Man probably reconstructed through art and uh, in different ways and shapes and forms through paintings and other illustrations. What a lot of people don't realize is that Java Man actually consists of nothing more than a skull cap, a femur, and three teeth, and a whole lot of imagination. There is no perfect, put-together skeleton of Java Man. This lifelike depiction is little more than speculation driven by evolutionary expectations of what man should look like if Darwinism were true. And we could go on and on with a mountain of evidence to show the fraudulence of the theory of evolution. But suffice it to say that this theory is a bill of goods that has been thrust upon society and presented as a scientific fact. Organic evolution is an enemy of God. Make no mistake. Evolution sets out to destroy God. Harvard geneticist Richard Lewontin said this, the problem is to get people to reject irrational and supernatural explanations of the world, the demons that exist only in their imaginations, and to accept a social and intellectual apparatus, science, as the only begetter of truth. Now, if you're like me, a theory like this isn't good enough. It doesn't answer the questions. In fact, it leaves more questions that can't be answered. It's not the supreme begetter of truth. It's not even science. 
William Provine of Cornell University stated that if Darwinism is true, then there are five inescapable truths. Number one, there's no evidence for God. Number two, there's no life after death. Number three, there's no absolute right or wrong. Number four, there's no true meaning or ultimate meaning for life. And number five, people don't really have free will. Those are all true if Darwinism is true. In other words, life has no meaning. It has no ultimate purpose. You are here. You live however you please. Do whatever you want. And when you die, you become worm dirt. And that's it. There has to be another explanation. This cannot be the only option for rational human beings to believe in. To me, the theory of evolution and the origin of species really falls apart when you, when you consider just one statement. And it's this. That something cannot come from nothing. It just can't. Everything that is created has to have had a creator. Which makes God even more amazing, right? Every house has a builder. There has never been an exception to that. And God is the builder of everything. You go back to the beginning. You go back to Genesis 1.1 and it reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible begins with a mind-blowing statement, doesn't it? The fact that God never had a beginning. That he never had an origin. Everything on this earth did. Everything that has been created had an origin. And there's a designer, God, who is behind it. But God himself stands above and apart from everything else. And not only has he always existed, he has a plan. And he has revealed that plan progressively since he created the world. This plan began with God himself. Right here in Genesis 1-1, we see that the central figure in this grand narrative is God. He is the one who existed before the world was created. He is the one who acted to create. And he is the one who continues to work out the culmination of his great plan. How many of you have ever visited the Biltmore in Asheville, North Carolina? Ever seen this sprawling mansion, this hotel? Beautiful place, right? you got to remember that this, this hotel, this, this, this mansion was built in the 1800s. It was built by a guy named George Washington Vanderbilt. It is an architectural masterpiece. Even though it was built in the 1800s, it has a floor space and a total of uh, four acres of floor space and a total of 250 rooms, including 35 bedrooms, 43 uh, bathrooms, 65 fireplaces, three kitchens, and such 19th century novelties or amenities such as electric elevators, a bowling alley, an indoor swimming pool, and forced air heating. Remember, this was built at a time when many people went outside to go to the bathroom. How about Disney World? Anybody ever been to the happiest place on earth? You know, you think about Disney World and you think about how in the 50s, Walt Disney had a vision for this Massive theme park, right? And it's certainly massive. Covers 27,258 acres or 43 square miles. There are four parks, two water parks, 27 themed resort hotels, several golf courses, and tons of other Disney-related theme items or venues. It is the most visited vacation site in the world with an annual um, population of 52 million people visiting. You look at these two places. You look at the Biltmore. You look at Disney World. If you ever visited those two places, if you've ever walked through the Biltmore, 
you learn something about the architect, don't you? If you've ever walked through Disney World and visited the various venues in Disney World, you learn something about the vision of Walt Disney, don't you? When you visit the Biltmore, you, you see something of the mind of George Washington Vanderbilt and what he meant and what he had in mind when he created it. When you visit Disney World, you experience the vision that Walt Disney had. Romans 1 and 20 tells us, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Just as you learn something about George Washington Vanderbilt when you visit the Biltmore, just as you learn something about Walt Disney when you visit Disney World, you learn something about God when you experience his creation. Living in this world exposes us to the God that created all these things, right? You look around you and you see the changing colors of autumn. You see the snow-capped mountains. You see the oceans hitting against uh, the white sand beaches. And you learn something about God who created it all. Look at verses, the verses that lead up to what we just read in Romans. Chapter, six, uh, chapter 1, verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Not only can we look around us in nature and see the evidence for God, we can even see it in people. And what's astonishing here is that Paul says you can even see it in people who are unrighteous and who suppress the truth. It's as if, as if he's saying, look, these men who are unrighteous, who are unholy, who suppress the truth, God is even manifested in them as well. It's as if he's saying, hey, by the way, there is a God. Just look at people. We are God's handiwork. We are his workmanship, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. The God of truth, the God of design is seen in our own lives. You, yourself, are proof of God. You are his creation. And his fingerprints are all over you. Turn with me to John 1 and 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus was there at the foundation of the world. He was involved in creation. He came into this world as a created human being, but he himself is like God. He is self-existent. He put on flesh, and he came to this earth to reveal God's will for human beings like you and me. And he came bringing a new word from God. This new word is often called the good news, that there is salvation for the sinner. If you look at Acts chapter 17, you have Paul giving his sermon at Areopagus on Mars Hill, and he sees all of these idols, all these temples built to these various gods that these people were serving. And he finds one altar that says to an unknown God. And Paul stands up and he basically says, let me tell you about that unknown God. He is the creator of all things. 
He is the only one that you should be serving. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He, is, he cannot be contained, and He is the God that you need to get to know. The Bible begins by introducing God as a creator. John, in his gospel, begins by introducing Jesus as creator. Paul begins his very famous sermon to these idol worshipers by emphasizing the God who has power over all things, who is a creator. People in Scripture lived in view of the God who created everything, and therefore it is of utmost importance that we know God as creator. When something is made, it reveals the attributes of the creator. Every creation contains a little something of the creator within it. When we look at what God has made, it reveals something about the creator. I think I speak for all of us when I say that we tend to take things for granted. And I think that's true in creation. We look at the things around us and we tend to take them for granted, whether it be the sunsets, whether it be, you know, the, the, the trees, which we don't have here. But if you go to other places, you know, you see them. But there's all kinds of things in nature that we tend to take for granted. And in our defense, they've always been here. I mean, at least since we've been alive, right? So it's not like there was never a time where everything was blank and dark and now all of a sudden we have all these things and we can appreciate it more. We, we've just always known these things. And that's probably a reason why we take it for granted. But there was a time when there was nothing and when God created something, right? There was a time when there was absolutely nothing and for whatever reason, God decided that it was time to create. And within this creation, we see the attribute of God that stands out above all the others and that is that he is all-powerful, that he is almighty. And we cannot afford to take that for granted. In Job chapter 38, we have this dialogue, and it's really not as much a dialogue as it is God scolding Job. Job had wanted and had pled for his day in court because he believed that God had falsely accused him, that he had gotten the wrong God, that all this bad stuff that was happening to him wasn't his fault. He hadn't done anything wrong. And in that day and age, if you were being punished so severely, it must have been from God because you did something wrong. If you were suffering health-wise or, or, or losing your prosperity, whatever it may be, it was God punishing you for some sin that you have in your life. And Job says, I haven't sinned. I, I, I'm not the guy. You've got the wrong person. And finally, he gets his day in court. Finally, God appears to Job and sets him straight. And in verse 1 of chapter 38, it reads, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And he said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements, since you know, or who stretched the line on it? On what were the, its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud, its garment, and thick darkness, its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors, and I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop. Don't you find it interesting that God spoke to Job out of a whirlwind? I mean, he's about to explain to him all the things that he has done and accuse him of being willing to speak up and speak out against God. And yet he can't answer even the most basic questions about creation. But it's interesting that God speaks to him in a whirlwind. You think a whirlwind here, think of, in our terms, hurricane. 
a tornado. That's going to get your attention, right? If you're standing there and God appears to you in a hurricane, a hurricane starts speaking, that's going to get your attention, right? And God begins rattling off all these things towards Job. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that may go and say to you, here we are, who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? And so God hits Job with a barrage of questions surrounding his inanimate creation. He gives him a tour of his zoo, so to speak. He shows him around and says, explain all this. You who seem to have all this wisdom, who seem to know what's going on, you have no problem telling me how I should run the universe. Answer these basic questions. And to Job's credit, he listens and he learns, right? To Job's credit, at the end of all of it, he says, you're right, I was wrong. He humbly admits that. In fact, in verse 2 of chapter 42, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Of all the things that God is, he is all-powerful. You know, the, the fancy word we use for this is omnipotent, which means all-powerful. Another term that is, that is used about God often through the Scriptures, in fact, 50 times or so, is the word almighty. And that word is only ever used of God. No one else in Scripture. God is all-powerful. He is almighty. Not only is he all-powerful and almighty, he is the source of all power. He is the source of everything in this universe. You may have the power to close the curtains, but you didn't make the sunshine. You may have the power to mow the yard, but you didn't make the grass grow. You may have the power to get your kids to obey you, but you didn't bring life into this world. You may have the power to solve mathematical equations that are very complicated, but you didn't invent the brain or the intellect. Everything that man comes up with is made with something that God created. Man doesn't come up with anything new. Anything that we create is from something that God has already created because God is the source of everything. God created something from nothing. We can't do that. And with God, it's an effortless energy. When man puts effort into doing something, he expends energy. But when God does it, he doesn't expend energy because he is energy. With effortless power, God has done and continues to do his work. Wherever there is any power at all, God is the author of it. That is what it means to be omnipotent. That is what it means to be the source of all power. Because the source of anything must be greater than that which flows from it. Hence, God is the source of all power in the universe. Notice what Isaiah states. He says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding. Before man 
can do work. He must have tools and materials. But God began with nothing and by the power of his word spoke everything into existence. But here's the beauty of all this. The beauty of all of this is that while God is almighty and all-powerful, he is also personal. That we can get close to God. You know, the message in the Old Testament, as we've talked about before, was stand back. You know, that was the overall message. Don't come near. You'll be struck dead. The message that we find through Christ and what we see play out in the New Testament is come near. That there's restoration through Christ. You know, we think of God as the King of Kings. And we picture him sitting on a throne. And what, what does a king do? He sits on the throne and he, and he orders his subjects and they bow before him. He makes decrees. He, he rules. And yet, don't you think his children still run to him? Don't you think a king's children still sit in his lap and call him daddy? And call him father? You think about that image with God. He is the king. He is sitting on the throne. He is above all, the almighty, the, the all-powerful creator of everything. And yet he still bids us to come. To come near. To call him father because we're his children. You think of the beauty of that, that the almighty creator still wants us to be close to him. That he calls us his children. Through Jesus Christ, the almighty, all-powerful God became personal and intimate. And while we must focus on the aspect of God as creator, we cannot forget about the aspect of God as father. They're not separate and apart. They go together. As we close, think about this. Think about you were living in the day and time when Jesus walked the earth. And you hear about him raising this man, Lazarus, from the dead. And so you want to find out more about how this happened. I mean, maybe you're a reporter for the Jerusalem Times or something, and so you're following, you're following Lazarus around, right? And you're, you're interviewing him, you're asking him about, you know, his diet, everything. I mean, you want to know, how did this happen? How did you get resurrected? You follow him, you interview him, you take notes and everything. But at the end of the day, what's the matter with that? You're following the wrong guy, right? If you want to know how Lazarus was resurrected, who do you need to be following? Jesus. Because he's the only one in the resurrection business, right? I mean, if you want to know how Lazarus was raised from the dead, don't follow Lazarus around, follow Jesus around. He's the one that resurrected him. He's the only one that has the power to do that. He's the one you should be interviewing. And it's the same way in this day and age. You can cut open a tree and you can examine the rings. You can study natural laws to find out how these things were created. But if you want to know about creation, what do you do? You study the creator. If you want to know about all the things that have been created, you don't study creation, you study their creator. You learn more about God, not the things that he made. For those of us living in this day and time, we look to God to explain creation. Because the power of creation is not found in creation. 
The power of creation is found in the Almighty God who created it. And if we want to explain creation, it really begins with those first words of the Bible, right? The very first words, in the beginning, God created. Again, you can, you can study the formation of the mountains and, and, and all those kind of things. You can do all of that and be impressed. But nature doesn't explain God. God explains nature, a powerful God who miraculously created everything and a personal God who also created a way for you to be saved. Don't just know some interesting facts about God. Know the God who created you, who created all of this around you, and who created a way for you to be close to Him. We can't miss that aspect. I think so often we approach the Bible with an academic pursuit. Learn facts. Learn, learn all these things about God. That's all fine and good. It's all fine and good to know the Bible, to study the Bible, but at the end of the day, it should draw you close to the Creator. That should be the goal. Because God is speaking something here, and it's not just an intellectual lecture. This is, this is not just God's study notes that, that he wants you to learn and, and so you can pass the final exam. No, this is God saying, I want you in heaven with me. The Almighty Creator wants you in heaven with him. And this book is your field manual on how to get there. So, the invitation this morning is this. Have you come near to God? Do you know the Creator on a personal and intimate level? And would you like to? If so, we want to help you with that this morning. If you've been considering what it means to be a child of God, and you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, then let's do that this morning. If you'd like to set up a Bible study with someone, let's do that starting today. I'll go back to the question we asked last week. What are you going to become in 2018? Think about that, and don't leave here this morning without being right with God. If you have a need, David is going to lead us in a song. Why don't you come forward as we stand and as we sing. Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder, consider